Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at Audible, there are hundreds of thousands of titles waiting for you. And best of all, you can get a freebie over at audibletrial.com slash other people. A freebie with a free 30-day trial. audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. These are audiobooks. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is organized noise. This is loosely organized conversation. How you doing today? out there in the world. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Uh, I'm fighting a bit of a cold. Can you hear it in my voice? Uh, is it lending me some additional gravitas? My guest today is Patrick Hoffman. His debut novel, The White Van, is out there now from Grove Atlantic. The early uh, reviews have been glowing, and I'm very excited to have him here. Uh, Patrick and I actually know each other a little bit. Uh, we went to college together many years ago, and we were uh, in the same dormitory our freshman year. This is the first time uh, that we've spoken in about 20 years. So uh, Patrick and I, uh, we're going to be uh, in conversation momentarily. Uh, before we begin, I thought I would comment on what is happening currently as I sit here recording this. Apple is uh, unveiling its latest round of uh, gadgets, which I imagine you're aware of. It, it would be almost impossible to not be aware of uh, such a thing if, you, if you're anywhere near uh, the internet. So uh, all I want to say is that it seems strange to me, because I was watching it before I, uh, before I started recording. It seems strange to me the way that these unveilings have become a kind of religious ritual in our culture. Like the aesthetics of it, the, obsess you know, the obsessing, the speculation, the whole ritual of it, the fetishization of technology. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm sitting here recording on a MacBook, I have an iPhone, but uh, what I'm getting at is that, you know, the elevation of this company and the elevation of its products uh, into this weird kind of uh, realm 
and then the aesthetics of the presentation you know the futuristic thing and the crowd and everyone's fawning and applauding and uh, you know even and then beyond that uh, customers camping out in front of the stores waiting for a phone what the fuck is that Like, who are these adults who camp out in front of a store? <laughs> Don't camp in front of a store, ever. That depresses me. I see that sometimes. I'll be like at Best Buy during the holidays. and I, Okay, so fine. The holidays might not be the best example. If you really need the deal, you need the, you need the sale price, and you, you know there's a limited number of these gadgets, fine. But if you're just geeking out, and you, you just can't wait for the new iPhone, and so you're camping out, you need to go get your head checked. There's a big hole. <laughs> There's a big hole in your life. There's a big hole in your heart, and it needs to be filled with something better than uh, a bunch of uh, gadgets. So, you know, just a weird ritual. And then I'm also fixated this week on uh, the ritual demonstrations of uh, outrage online. And it's not like this is new this week, but, uh, you know, it happens, seems to happen almost every day in my Twitter feed or whatever. But this week it's Ray Rice, this NFL football player. He punched his wife, knocked her out on an elevator, uh, awful, you know, stuff and, uh, kind of sickening to watch. The video was released by TMZ. Everyone uh, flew into a state of, uh, moral indignation yesterday online. At least the people uh, I follow, you know? And uh, I just, I find it exhausting. And I got into a debate last night. I almost found myself defending Ray Rice, <laughs> which is uh, incorrect. You know, I get that. But I think about this guy and I don't, you know, I know nothing about him other than he did this horrible thing. But I wonder, you know, is this a uh, pattern of behavior on his part? Does he have a history of beating this woman? Uh, does he have a history of beating other women? Because that changes the calculus considerably for me. Uh, or is he a married guy who, uh, you know, was maybe drunk and angry and did something horrible, inexcusable, not trying to defend the action, but just saying he's a human being. And so he does this horrible thing and, uh, you know, he gets suspended, uh, you know, the suspension from the NFL, the initial suspension of two games was uh, unbelievably light, particularly when you have players getting suspended for an entire season for testing positive for marijuana. The NFL is retarded. You know, what a diseased organization. So, anyhow, you know, all I'm saying is suspend the guy. Take some of his money away. Take a lot of his money away. You know, suspend him for a long time. And make him do mandatory, like, anger management. You know what I'm saying? Like, punish the guy. He deserves a punishment for what he did. No doubt about it. But watching people online, it's like they want him dead. And there's all this rage. And I find myself watching it and then trying to summon it in my own self. And I have no interest. And I'm like, I don't know. I find myself exhausted by it. That's what I'm trying to say. People are so angry. And then there's like one thing that happens in public and it gives them a way to vent online. I don't think it's healthy. You know, it's like you take this guy who you know has his own, clearly has his own rage problem, his own anger problem. 
And so you respond to that by getting angry and raging. Do you see what I'm saying? And so now I'm raging (laughs) about the outrage. It's just a fucking whirlpool. It's a spiral. I'm spiraling right now. I, I guess I'm like, as a human being, we all do stupid shit. And granted, this is spectacularly stupid and vicious. But I cannot imagine bearing the brunt as a public figure of that kind of outrage. That's got to be surreal. Just being publicly hated. So, anyhow, that's what I've been thinking about, you know? I've been thinking about gadgets and public hatred. (laughs) And uh, I imagine you have too, at least to some extent. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest, once again, is Patrick Hoffman. His debut novel, The White Van, uh, it's out there now from Grove Atlantic. I'm very pleased to have him here and to get the chance to catch up with him after all these years. So uh, here we go. This is Patrick Hoffman, and his book, once again, is called The White Van. So I am in my agent's office uh, in Manhattan, and... Um, I just moved to New York City from upstate New York just like three days ago. So, so it's all happening. Like you're moved. Like you went from San Francisco. You got the book deal. The book's in. You know, coming out. You moved from West Coast to upstate, and then now you're down in Manhattan. Like it's it's all like from a literary perspective, this feels like a very natural migration. Yeah, I guess so. You know, I mean, was it literary? Was it a, a literary motivation that brought you to New York? Um, well, so what happened was I was working in San Francisco and I'd been living in San Francisco for about 15 years and my girlfriend and I, she went to visit um, this town in upstate New York called Hudson and she can't, and I had always been wanting to kind of move to a small town, but more in Northern California. And I was just feeling kind of burnt out on urban living. Um, and so she came back one time from visiting Hudson and said that, um, she would be interested in moving there. And then, so I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. Checked it out and we liked it. And then a couple months later, she got offered a job there working at a magazine. So then we were like, all right, let's just do this. Wow. And then your book, I mean, and we should say too, before we get too far down the river that uh, we actually know each other prior, though we haven't spoken in probably close to 20 years. Yeah, I think it's been about 16 or something. Yeah. yeah, I can't do math, but we were in college together. We were in the same dormitory. 
Right. Okay. And I remember, I mean, I, I definitely remember you. Um, I don't know. Like, do we have any like concrete memories of doing things together? It was more like being at the same parties and, you know, co- yeah. college memories, like shouting at each other in like a crowded, smelly living room or something like Yeah. I think, and, and you know, we'd see each other sometimes, but I think we got kind of got thrown off because I took the year after my freshman year off. So then we were sort of, because I studied film also, because you studied film, right? Uh, yeah, that's what they tell me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we could have had a bunch more classes together, but. What did you do know. after your freshman year? You took a time out? Yeah, I went to San Francisco for four months, and then uh, a couple of friends of mine went to Europe for six months. Okay. And that was just like, what, like kind of a gap year? Yeah, just kind of take a break. That sounds, yeah, that sounds good. I should have done that. It was a it was a great time. Um, do you feel like when you came back after that, you had like a better appreciation for your education or something, or did you come? I back? I do think I had a better appreciation, sort of, for the education. But also, I had grown up in well, I was born in San Francisco and then moved to Boulder, Colorado when uh, I was six. So I had grown up in Boulder too, and then was going to college in Boulder. So it was just nice to take a break and get away from. Uh, the hometown. Oh, know. right, right, right. Okay. So, uh, growing up in Boulder, which I mean has changed quite a bit, but is still like one of the best qualities of life, like one of the best living standards of any town in America, it would seem like when you think about all the different like markers, you know, from weather to surroundings to amenities, like it's just such like a utopia. Um, I know that that has, it's, you know, there's another side to that coin, but was that how it was like when you were growing up there? I think it was that way growing up as a kid. Um, you know, we would just play outside all the time and it was just, you know, nice weather and snow and everything and you just be outside all the time. But then um, now I'm not as into it for, you know, for what you're talking about for the other side of the coin. Well, it's gentrified a lot and there's a lot of, you know, I don't know. Last time I went back there, I like the, there were parts of it that I felt like uh, reminded me kind of Los Angeles. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's crazy, and also Silicon Valley sort of. It's got kind of a tech vibe there now. Yeah, that's maybe the better. Uh, that's maybe the better parallel. Yeah, I mean, I you know I like it. I I don't really want to live there myself. Well, yeah, I don't. You know, it's hard to go home again. So yeah. So you got out of uh, college and you moved back to San Francisco, and you started working as a private eye. I uh, got out of college, moved to San Francisco, started working at a dessert shop for a year. During the tech boom, making six fifty an hour. <laughs> um, during the first tech boom, um, and then started driving a taxi for four years. Okay, that's good. I've always wanted. I've always wanted to do that. Again. I've always wanted to drive a taxi. Was it, I mean four years? It must not have been too terrible if you did it for that long. It was awesome. I loved it. The really like two years would have been probably a better amount of time, but. Uh, it was great, and it was also sort of a good training for investigation. How so? Somehow. Just talking to people? Yeah, talking to people and knowing the city, you know, and going everywhere and meeting everyone and just kind of us. So I was sort of um, coming from Boulder. I felt kind of naive and sort of green, you know, and then so it was just more sort of being in the city and dealing with that stuff every night Um to get you sort of tougher to be able to then work as an investigator. Yeah. Okay. So did like did you ever have a scary fare where you were like afraid of the person in the back of your cab? Like a. Uh, yeah, there would be some times where I would be scared. You know, it's a it's a 
dangerous job and having people ride behind you and you're going to a dangerous neighborhood or something, but honestly not too often did it feel that way. And then did you ever drive anybody famous around? Like any kind of like, would you ever give like Steve Jobs a ride back in the day or? I had a funny, my only famous ones was, um, do you know the band, the dirty three from Australia? No. But it's kind of, you know, it's, they're not super famous, but they, they do pretty well. But I had a funny with that one with them once that was at the what driving and I was dying. Um, a funny ride with them one time. Oh, okay. Um, I was driving and I was starving and I was about to pull over and get a burrito, but then I got a call to pick someone up at a bar. So I went to the bar and uh, picked these two guys up and they got in the back and then they were talking about how hungry they were. And I was like, well, you know what? I was just going to stop for a burrito. Let's go get a burrito. And so we all went to get a burrito and then started talking to them about what they were doing. And uh, and then they said they were on tour, you know, and they gave me backstage tickets the next day. Oh, cool. Um, so that was, yeah, that was pretty funny. And then any other ones? Um, one time I was, uh, they flagged me to stop at the Warfield or something in San Francisco. Yeah. And um, there was a cab in front of me, and then the White Stripes got into that cab, and their manager got into mine. So oh. I was bummed out about that one. <laughs> Damn, so close. <laughs> um, and then one time I had a guy... The singer of Luna, which is not a band that I know either, really. And I, I was dropping him off, and uh, it was obvious he was a musician. I was dropping him off at the Fillmore, and he, I asked what kind of music he played, and he said alternative, and I was, said, "Yeah, I'm not really that into alternative." And uh, he was like, "Yeah, me neither." <laughs> <laughs> I think I actually used to have a Luna record, like back in the day. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, yes, I, yes. I I would have to like dig around and like figure out yeah. you know what they sound like, but I'm pretty sure I used to get it. I used to have one of their albums. But, um, so okay, so and then did you ever? I mean, people like I, I don't mean to dig too much into this, but you know, it's such a it's one of those professions where you could ask a lot of questions, like people having sex in the back of your cab. That ever happened? Um, well, sort of like getting pretty heavy, not outright sex, but um, like have yeah, you seen? Did you ever see? Time. Did you ever see genitals in your cab? <laughs> Yeah, actually, I've got a good genital story, and I've got a good sex story, too. Okay, good. The, uh, the sex story, this couple was getting, like, really hot and heavy in the back. And uh, and so we stopped at a stoplight, and I was like, man, you guys are getting really hot and heavy back there. And the lady was like, yeah, you want to join in? And I was like, <laughs> actually, yeah. <laughs> but, then, but then I got too scared, and I just kept driving. <laughs> so, uh, like, this is the thing, though, is that... I mean, I get like PDA. Some people are uh, comfortable with it, and you know, some people are having more of an exhibitionist side of their personality than others. But it always strikes me that like if somebody's really getting, if two people are really getting it on in the back of a cab, like they're doing it to fuck with the cab driver. Like it's kind of like there's an right. el- there's an element of like jokery to it, if jokery is a word. Like, did you feel that from them, or were they serious? Um, you know, I don't know if they were serious or not, and I don't know, I don't know if they were doing that, but yeah, probably. I mean, I'm shy to kiss my girlfriend when I'm in public, you know, just <laughs> right. like well. a kiss on the lips to like say bye to her, like, all right, bye. You know, that kind of kiss makes me shy to do that, so. Yeah. No, like, it was funny, like, I, like, I was just at the uh, bookstore with my daughter, and we were just standing in line, it was sort of quiet, and there were people with us, and like, she's four years old, and she's really sweet, and like, out of nowhere, she was like, I love you, Dad. And then I, I, I heard, I felt myself being like embarrassed to be like, I love you too, sweetheart. <laughs> and, I'm like, what? and I'm like, what kind of fucking dick am I? Like, why, why is that yeah. embarrassing? But it was embarrassing to me somehow to have that moment like publicly. 
That's hilarious. Yeah. So, okay. So you have that one. And then what was the other one uh, to get back so to? So the other one was the genital one was um, one time I picked up a prostitute um, and she was a transsexual woman. And we went to pick up another friend of hers in the tenderloin and we were talking and she said, uh, she was like, yeah, I just got a new pussy. And uh, <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's cool. And she was like, yeah, you want to see it? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll see it. And so she pulled her pants down and showed me it. What did it? I mean, did it look like a normal? Uh, like, was it? Did, is there anything different about I, it? I mean, it it um it was kind of like bald looking and sort of. I, I mean, I don't want to get too graphic ex- explaining. The, oh, please uh, go ahead. I don't phys- care. The physical side, you know, <laughs> it's just like it. It looked like a vagina. It did. Okay. I mean, like a some. It looked like like an artistic representation of a vagina. Okay, like a like a clay model. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, and then people uh, like anything else? Like people? I mean, I, I guess it's kind of boring to talk about people getting sick. That had to have happened. But like, is that part of the job? You got to clean that out if it's in your cab. If something. Yeah, yeah. You learn like you can after it happens once or twice. You start to see the signs and kind of nip it in the bud before it happens. What, do you just stop, there was, you um, yank somebody out of your car and throw them onto the sidewalk? Or? Yeah, or just be like, are you sick? Like, are you going to be sick? You know, I'm gonna, you can't be sick in here. Or, like, make them open the window or just, like, I think even sometimes just checking in with them and threatening them to throw to throw them out would snap them out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But you, you said you sounded like you had another story. What? Oh, well, then I was just going to say just, like, general drug use and stuff, you know, and drug deals and uh, where people are, like, you know, the where someone's smoking crack in, in the car or something like that, you Jesus. know, in yeah. the cab. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, what do, what do you yeah, say in, what do you say in that instance? So you just let it go? I mean, with San Francisco, it's, it's kind of freewheeling. I mean, the first time, you know, the first time it happens or the first or second time, you're, I was just kind of rolling with it. But then, then, you know, I tried not to do that either. <laughs> Sir, could you please not smoke crack in the cab? Yeah. 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 Fuck, man. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting work. And it's interesting work for a writer, um, you know, and it's interesting work, I guess, like as you said, for somebody who is uh, planning on transitioning from, ca- you know, driving a cab into a private investigation. So how did that leap happen? So a friend of mine um, was working as an investigator for this place called the Habeas Corpus Resource Center in San Francisco that does um, death penalty appeals and she was working as an investigator. Um, and she, I was like, man, that sounds like a cool job. And she said, yeah, you should talk to this person. So I talked to someone and he said, you should intern at the public defender's office in San Francisco. So then I did that while I was driving the taxi for six months. And then, um, and then a private investigator in San Francisco named Tim O'Brien uh, was looking to hire an investigator. So he hired me. Wow. Okay. So, and were you doing death penalty appeal like investigation? Mm, no. Okay. Because I, I, I had it. I actually had an author on this program. It was Renee Denfeld or Denfield, I think it was, who uh, or Denfeld, who had uh, that. That was her career in addition to being a writer. That's just like an odd. Oh yeah. Sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, what were you doing for Tim O'Brien? So he would do mainly criminal cases. So we would work. You know, we'd get hired by a lawyer. And then work on the cases to investigate the case and get the person off of the charge that they were charged with. And most of the cases were paid for by the courts. Um, so it wasn't like private clients hiring us so much. It was just sort of an alternative to the public defender. So we were working on 
um, you know, mainly pretty serious felony cases and stuff. And then occasionally we take on a private case. So there were a few times where um, we would follow someone or something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, okay, because that's the thing. You you say private eye to people and they're immediately drawing up, um, you know, movie scenes. And it, there's some sort of, you know, something very cinematic about it and dramatic about it. But how much of how much of it was that where you're in a car and a stakeout or you're following someone or you're, taking photos with like a zoom lens or whatever. And how much of it was just like grunt work, interviewing people, working the phones, you know, hitting dead. Uh, it was like 99% the interviewing people and working the phones and like looking for people. Yeah. I mean, and then one, 1% surveilling people. I mean, you know, there's some private investigators that only do that surveillance type stuff. Um, but for us, we just worked on these criminal cases where you don't really use surveillance, but I mean, it's still even looking for the people still feels cinematic and stuff. And to me, it's you know much more interesting. It's doing the surveillance is fun for like a minute, but then it gets boring. It starts getting super boring. People are just in their house watching TV. You right, know? right, right. <laughs> so okay, so give me an, I, let's, let's give me an yeah. example of like uh, the kind of a, a kind of crime that someone would have committed or like, give me an example of like a case that you might be presented with just so people can get an understanding of the, exactly the kind of work that you were doing. Um, so maybe like, you know, so there would be a murder case and, um, then we would get hired by the attorney to look into that case. So say it happened on a street and, um, there were six witnesses listed in the police report. You know, that's kind of where we would start is just reviewing all the discovery from the case um, and finding all those witnesses and stuff. So then we would go and try to talk to them. And I describe it to people sometimes. It's like if you saw a crime on a street, um, the police report would say that you, Brad Listy, said that you saw this crime on the street, and that's about it, or whatever. And then it would be our job to say, you know, we'd go talk to you, and it would come out through talking to you that you usually wear glasses, but you weren't wearing them that day, um, that you had had three drinks, um, you know, that you didn't grow up around whatever race the suspect you were IDing was. So you just kind of look for stuff that will uh, help your client. Like cast doubt upon the situation. Yeah. So, I mean, and you guys were successful how much of the time? Um, let's see. His office, pretty successful, you know? Yeah. Pretty successful. It's harder because then after that I went to the public defender's office in San Francisco. So I worked at Tim O'Brien's office for four years and then went to the public defender's office for five years. And, um, and... They, uh, San Francisco's public defender's office is one of the best in the country and has like really good numbers and stuff for how many cases they take to trial and what percentages they win. They win like 50% of their murder trials and that kind of thing. So, yeah, so I think San Francisco in general too is a good criminal defense town. Yeah. Well, like San Francisco, as, a big, as far as big cities go, has a, uh, much more sympathy for the little guy than most big cities, right? Yeah, well, yeah, and they used to they used to be liberal, you know, it's changing, but um yeah. Okay. Yeah, and they're just more maybe a little bit I think it takes some intelligence sort of to wrap your head around. Well, not you know, I don't know, but I there it's basically I think the liberalness helps. Yeah. Well, and then what about uh like what do you ever 
find yourself investigating on behalf of somebody that you felt was guilty, and then you get them off, and you feel shitty about that? Um, well, yeah, that could ha- that could possibly happen. Except I wouldn't feel shitty about it. I'd still feel happy. Really? Yeah. Why? Because um, cause our job is to win, really, and even like even if I think that someone was guilty, um, it's not really up to me and what I think. Like just ethically and stuff, our job is just to win the case. Right. We do that ethically, but um, you know, not cheat and not do something like that. But to win the case is what you want. So occasionally there would be times where, you know, I would feel a little conflicted, maybe. But even on a case where it was like a a murder that was a really intense murder and over nothing or something. And, you know, right now, if I would, you know, I would want the person to get a not guilty verdict if I was working on the case. Yeah. when that's just like, that's what the system, that's what our judicial system demands, right? Like a vigorous defense, yeah. a vigorous prosecution and, and a jury of your peers. And like, if you're a, if you're a piece in that machine, you're just trying to perform your role and, like I think, I think like yeah, I get it. It's like about the integrity of the system of justice, and not about like what your personal feelings might be. Yeah, and just and especially for our, I mean, it's interesting because for our side, for the defense side, you know, I feel like we should be that way, and our job should only be to defend the people and only want that. Um, and then the prosecution side, they shouldn't be that way, really. They should be looking for the truth. And so if they feel like someone, yeah, you know, maybe this guy isn't guilty, they should uh, drop that case. Um, and then often, at least in San Francisco, they ended up not dropping those cases, and they became more like our side where they just wanted to win and Weird. push forward. Weird. Yeah, yeah that's not, yeah, I think yeah, that doesn't sound good. But I get it, like just yeah. like as a, as a matter of competition or, you know. Yeah, the, they the, wanna... the urge to be right is powerful in human beings. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know. <laughs> Uh, um, yeah. Okay, so like, are you inside of courtrooms for this? Are you performing as a witness? Yeah, occasionally I would uh, testify in cases. Okay, and so you'd get up on the stand uh, and get up on the stand and um, testify about something like maybe um, someone. Sometimes it's not that interesting stuff, you know. I'd get up there and talk about then I went and measured the scene, and it was seven hundred yards from here to there. But when it um, gets really interesting is when you're impeaching a witness who has testified and, and they told you something and then they got up on the stand and said something else. Um, then you can get up and say what they had told you. And so that one gets, you know, that's very contentious and um, high-pressure situation. Because there's the what, the conflict or... Just because then the, I mean, like the DA is not going to really come after you if you're talking about the 700 yards. You know, but if you're going to get up on the stand and say that you talked to one of their witnesses and and their witness actually told you something different than what they got up on the stand and testified to, that's kind of more of an intense. You know, you're taking it up a notch on our side. You're like really going for it there. Right. So right. It, it's, they're just ready to try to take you down or whatever, and they're going to come full force at you. You know. Yeah. How did you perform in those situations? Um, I think I performed pretty good. You know, I I am more comfortable talking about the investigating or more comfortable like saying that, yeah, I'm a good investigator than I would be saying that I'm a good writer, you know, so I can <laughs> say, you know, I can say that, yeah, I was a pretty good investigator and I, I could testify pretty well. You know, I think I've got a, the kind of mind that um, works sort of fast in those just um, 
when and now of course the mine shuts down <laughs> right and i can't <laughs> but you know i can understand sort of where they're going or whatever and try to just do it you know yeah well and so and what about like the interviewing process and dealing with people um you know who are accused of violent crimes or who are involved in messy situations and then in, interviewing witnesses and family members and all that kind of stuff like uh, from a human perspective, seeing all of this stuff, uh, what, like what did, how did it change you in terms of maybe like how you view life, humanity? Like, did it, did it give you a darker view of things to be immersed in this stuff on a daily basis? Well, I mean, I think, it, you know, it gave me a darker view, um, in some ways. Um, and it was getting intense and it was intense to deal with, uh, murder every day, kind of for like nine years. Or just, you know, you're opening a file up every day and you're thinking about it. And uh, you're looking at pictures and you're reading reports and you're going and trying to interview people. Um, so then I started kind of getting like a little bit of what, I mean, it almost felt like PTSD sort of where I was starting to get like, I would flinch on the street where before I hadn't been doing that. If just there was like some fast movement or something, oh, wow. you know, not in like a, not in like a really intense way, but in the, in a sort of intense way. And then sometimes... Right before I left San Francisco, uh, I was working on a case and just like I would go to sleep and I'd see these pictures of the autopsy just in my brain, you know, like when I was trying to sleep, I'd just see these photos of this uh, uh, woman's autopsy pictures of her and it was just like, man, this is getting pretty intense there. But then on the other hand, I think it's just like you are seeing a lot and talking to a lot of people, you know, and you see some good sides of, of humanity too, you know, and people that are willing to help and people being brave and wanting to do the right thing or something like that. You know, you just see a lot of humanity in it. It's like uh, doing it just now and thinking it's like, you know, if you read a lot of books, you'd be a better person sort of, or have maybe a deeper understanding of the world. And then if you, well, it puts you, a lot of yeah, I mean, I, I mean, this is a conversation that I've had in a literary context or in just in a human context many times where it's like, you know, a job like the one that you're, that you had and are describing uh, puts you into touch with lots of different people who fall outside of your, uh, like the realm of your immediate experience, you know, or, or socioeconomic background or whatever, yeah, whatever. Totally. And, you know, having that experience is valuable and it gives you hopefully like a greater sense of empathy and an ability to relate, you know, on a human level to people in situations that, you know, um, might previously have been difficult to relate to. And then I think, you know, like you just said, reading books, especially reading books about people and who come from walks of life that are different from yours, whether it's up, you know, up the scale or down the scale, just getting a wider variety of contact with experience and consciousness of uh, characters or people, you know, in different uh, parts of the world or walks of life is super valuable. And I don't think there's enough of that. And it can sometimes feel like when I talk to people about what they read, that they tend to read um, in a narrow channel, you know, with re with regard to the types of people they read about or the types of stories they want. And um, yeah. I think that can be uh, something of a shame sometimes, you know, it's, it's, I think we, we, we would all benefit from maybe reading a little bit more widely outside of our comfort zone or testing the boundaries a little bit. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, 
there's this great book called The White Van coming out. So yeah, <laughs> right. So okay, so let's let's get to that. Um, you know, in terms. I'm of, kidding. No, but I mean, you know, it's like it's a good place to to make the transition because, uh, you know, doing all this work and having, you know, I guess you were nursing a literary bent. You went to film school, so you know, you always had kind of this storytelling itch, but. You know, you must have right. you must have picked uh, you must have picked the the jobs that you picked with at least some eye on how they might feed into um, creative work. No, I mean it seems like it. A taxi driver and a private investigator, both jobs seem sort of ripe, as opposed to like you know uh, an accountant or you know. Uh, yeah, um, I think it was definitely part of it, but it wasn't um, super like plotted out where I was like do this and then I'll become a writer, you know, where it was like A to B, but it was like kind of like, yeah. And also it would be good for writing or um, any of this creative stuff. But it was also just kind of like, you know, I was working in a dessert shop and my friend told me he drove taxis and he was waking, making this much more money. And I was like, well, that sounds good. Then I was driving taxis and this person said that she was doing that. And I said, oh, that sounds interesting. So then I'd go do that, you know, and, but always I think there was a little bit of thinking that, yeah, it would be good for writing. Okay, so like, how many? When did you start writing creatively? Like, when were you making serious attempts at fiction or screenwriting or whatever? Well, I mean, even before college, I was thinking about it. Like, I remember in the summer before college, trying to decide what to study, and it was like I can remember the exact night actually when I came to the conclusion. But I, I was down on that Pearl Street Mall with my friends, you know, and it was nighttime, and I was thinking like, why well, should I study? creative writing or should I do film? And uh, um, I decided to study film because I thought it seemed like there were more jobs in film, you know, so it seemed more sort of uh, that I could get a job after college, which I think ended up being probably, I don't know, not, it didn't seem to be the case really in reality, but right. Um, so I was thinking a little bit about it at that time and then in college, but then once I did start studying film, then I kind of shifted my internal identity a little bit to trying to think of myself more as a film person, you know? And so that probably took up a big from, you know, until I was in my probably late twenties or something, just trying to think of that. But, um, how, wait, not, how, to, how to like disentangle yourself from that internal identity as like a screenwriter or a filmmaker or something. Well, just thinking like if I was sort of, you know, working in the dessert shop and I was thinking like I want to be doing something else, I was probably at that time thinking more I wanted to be working in film. Right. And you, But you never wanted to come down to Los Angeles and give Hollywood a try or anything? I don't know. I, you know, my, my, my thing is, I think part of it is I'm just not, you know, now with some, now that I'm further along in life and can look back on it, I think I... I uh, was not technically, I didn't have any of the technical stuff, you know, so I wasn't a good cameraman. Also, I've got really shaky hands just my whole life. I've had shaky hands, so I could never be really a good cameraman. And then, like, I wasn't, I didn't really love editing, you know, and doing that kind of stuff. And um, so it wouldn't be any of the technical kind of stuff of filmmaking. And then I wasn't like, I'm not like a super networker. And like, you know, really like out there like schmoozing in L.A. I, I was just kind of always scared to go down to L.A. and try to do that thing. So, yeah, well, no, it's like, I mean, it's all, all those things re resonate with me because I was the same way. Like, I, 
you, I studied film, but like dealing with the machines always was like, ugh, I don't want to load a camera. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I still have anxiety dreams about trying to edit like yeah. a sixteen millimeter actual film. You know, well, and but and we should like, also I'll say, have dreams still where I'm like, ah, oh, it's all messed up. Uh, right, right. <laughs> but we should also say, like back when we were doing that, we were on like what the Moviola or whatever it was. Like this, yeah. this was like just yeah. the, just when things were shifting to digital. So like we were like actually cutting physical celluloid and. Yeah, I remember taping that shit together and just being like, uh, and running yeah. it, running it through that little, you know, it was kind of a nightmare. Yeah. But people love that. Uh, stuff. It was the worst. Yeah, I didn't yeah. Know. Some people, if they're into it, they're into it. But for me, and apparently you, you know, it wasn't our thing. Well, and it's also the other common thing that I hear from people who started with an interest in in cinema. And you know, it should be said, I think that the interest in cinema is genuine, and I think that that's the you know that's the dominant narrative medium of our lives. You know, in our particular generation, right. I think it still probably is television and cinema, but. Um, you know, you get into it and then there's the, you know, the guts of it, you know, in, involving, uh, you know, technology. And then the other thing that I often hear is that the collaboration for people who then eventually shift over to literature is that the collaborative nature of the medium where you're dealing with lots of different people and, um, you know, trying to put together a crew and a cast and all that kind of stuff can take a lot of the fun out of it for somebody, I think, who's primarily interested in narrative and writing. Yeah, Totally. So that's like, that's the part of it that always like often bogs me down is like, I would love to make a film, but it's like, oh man, getting all the people and organizing. I know. Or just the confidence (laughs) to walk into Like if it was like directing to be like, all right, everyone, this is what we're going to do. You know, I'd be nervous to do that one. Yeah. See if everyone, someone would set it up for me, I could do that. Just like, but just doing the logistics. Like I could walk in and like, you know, if I had the right script, I'd be like, all right, I know what to do, but Or at yeah. least, I, you know, that could be hubris, but that's how I feel. But it's just the, <laughs> the, the logistical nature of filmmaking is, is something that, like, boggles a little bit. But I guess if you're on, like, right. you know, if, if, you, if you're lucky enough to be on, like, a, a well-financed production, like, a lot of that stuff, you know, they have a system figured out. And they have people who know how to work the logistics and whatnot. But it's, it's definitely... Yeah, we could make it now. We got people that cut the film for us. Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, okay, so you you get to your late twenties. You've been working as a private eye for what five years at that point. Um, I started working as a private eye when I was like twenty seven. Okay, so, so you're 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 early yeah. in it. You're approaching maybe like yeah. close to the halfway point, and you start to shift over to, um, you know, maybe I'm going to write a book. Right. And then like were you, like were you? I mean, obviously you're you're a reader, but like how did you actually you know in a concrete way start to try yeah so basically like over those years from even even in college and then after college um all the way up until i started this book um which was about four years ago um i would only you know i would was always into writing and like you said i was into reading a lot but um i would try to start i would write things and i just was never happy with them and i would never finish them really um, so I'd write like a short story here or there, you know, but I wasn't like trying to put it out there and I wasn't really loving it and I'd start things and then stop. Um, and then, so then I, it's crazy how it happened actually. Cause it was just like some simple advice that a friend of mine gave me one night we were having drinks and he was like, what do you, what do you really want to be doing? And, uh, 
his name is Ed Loftus. He's a great artist. And um, so I told him I, re- I wanted to be writing novels. And he was like, well, what's the problem? You know, what's holding you up? And I told him what I just said, that I start something and it feels inspired. And then something happens uh, where that feeling goes away. And then it feels just like horrible. And I get nauseous feeling. <laughs> and, um, and he was like, no, that's a great sign. Like, embrace that feeling. And just keep going and now of course I've seen I see that all the time so it doesn't sound like I'm like giving advice that you don't see but I hadn't really heard anyone explain that to me before that it's going to feel horrible like a lot of the time or some of the time at least right and that's and that's fine you know yeah. or good even as he said like that's a good feeling <laughs> I you know and then that like literally he said he gave me the speech and then i started the book uh the next day and and then finished it like three years after that okay so uh let's talk about this nauseous feeling and about like how you then made the shift like did you once he said that like did you obviously it changed you in terms of your approach to uncertainty which is i think maybe what you're getting at you know where you're it's not done yet, and you have to just kind of live with the imperfections and do the hard work of refining them. But from a discipline standpoint, in terms of work ethic or the time you were spending or the level of focus you were bringing to the sessions, like did that shift as well, or had that, al- that, had that always been there? No, that definitely shifted because before it would be – I would start something and it would feel good. So then I might be – I mean, I was never very disciplined at all leading up to this. you know. So I would feel like inspired to write something and I would do it, but then that inspiration would leave and then I wouldn't stick to a routine or anything. So then when he told me that, then I – I mean, like right then really, then I did start doing a routine more where it was every day. When, when would you do it? In the mornings or the – I would do it like a lot of times I would do it on my lunch hour too while I was working. And, uh, um, I would, it's kind of an interesting story actually, cause I would, uh, do like, I'd be out working and then it would be lunchtime or something. So I just take an hour and we had these cars to drive around. I was using a van, actually a white van and I would park it and work for an hour. Just like, you know, I had different spots around the city that I liked in the tenderloin or something. So I would just, and I would handwrite it in a notebook and just work for an hour and try to write like three pages. Wow. You know, you're the second. I, it's so funny because, you know, people say things on this show and it like will remind me of a past guest. But I think you're the second author that I've had on who has written in a van. <laughs> oh, is that right? Yeah. Susan Strait in Riverside. She's got oh. like she has kids and like this crazy household. And, you know, so it's always like noisy in her house. And so she would just like get in her minivan and like drive to like a empty street in Riverside and just pull over. Yeah, pull that's over. awesome. Yeah. I want to I want to meet her or read it now. <laughs> you, but, guys, um, you, you guys are van riders. Yeah, but then he, and then even so, if I wasn't working, even if it was at home, I would also same thing. Like I would just go out to the parking to the driveway and just yeah, like sit in the van because it was. Uh, I didn't have a problem because I don't have kids or anything. But um, I think my problem more was my girlfriend is a. She's a professional journalist and stuff, so um, I just felt like um, self-conscious around her, sort of trying to work on this story. You know, <laughs> right. I just wanted like privacy where I could just do it. Well, and who's this? Who's this artist buddy of yours who told you to embrace the nausea? <laughs> uh, his name is Ed Loftus. He's an amazing artist, like a painter. He's a, he draws with pencils and like photorealistic drawings. Oh, um, cool! Where you really can't. I mean, you can't tell that they're. People think they're black and white photographs, but they're also just um, 
you know, it's not just that. The, what he chooses to draw is amazing, too. Oh, that sounds cool. So um, let's, like, you know, like, talk about, uh, like, it's a three-year process to get the manuscript done. And just because I think this is a common, it's a common experience for anybody who makes stuff creatively, but, you know, for our purposes, for people who write um, books. And you can talk about, like, a time when you felt like, like, even after, like, post-Ed Loftus nausea conversation, you talk about a, a time in the book where it felt lost, like even after that, like were there, was there a period like a year in where you were like, oh shit, it's fucked. Like, you know, it's not, I happening. mean, just like constantly, you know, not, not, it was, the question is, was there a period where it wasn't feeling that way? Yeah. And you just kept, you know, going. and even, yeah. And uh, yeah, I just kept going. I mean, you know, and then you feel like it's, I, I was exaggerating a little bit because I was thinking it was good at the same time, sort of too, but also like, a lot of the time just feeling really uncertain about it. And I um, wasn't sharing it with anyone. You know, I didn't show it to anyone until I was done with the first draft. And uh, and so I was just like constantly feeling that way. And I had a buddy that was an investigator with me um, who I would like talk to him about it because he was the writer too. And uh, he's would, you know, give me little therapy sessions and just be like, no, that's the way it is. Like, that's how everyone feels like. Um, but yeah, it's still, and, uh, even now still, if people say they like the book and I like really have a hard time believing them sort of often, like, <laughs> you know, there's some people that I feel like I'm like, I know that person wouldn't lie and he's saying he likes the book, but so why is he saying that? <laughs> <laughs> what are you trying to do? Yeah. Well, or just like everyone always looking for motives, you know, like now that a couple of reviews have started coming in, I'm like. Ask me, did you know that person that wrote that one? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, you got a a glowing review from Publishers Weekly. You got a starred review, right? Yeah, yeah, I got that one, and then a nice one just came out in the Wall Street Journal. Really nice one. And then the Chronicle, uh, the San Francisco Chronicle also had a really good one, too. They just, those came out this week. The book's coming out that came out on Tuesday. Wow. Well, congrats. Awesome, man. You must be be excited. Underneath all of the uncertainty and anxiety, there must be some excitement. Oh yeah, definitely. Okay, so um, so let's get further down the road. Um, you know, in terms of this publication story, you you finish the manuscript, you finally get it to the point where you think it's ready, and then you have to go find an agent. Yeah, so this story is kind of interesting too, and it's almost this one's sort of almost embarrassing because it uh, all happened so easily for me. Um, so, but so we moved to Hudson from San Francisco. And then I wanted to take a couple months and work on it full time just to do some revisions and try to make it all, you know, get a final draft. And so I was working on that. And then the day, literally the day that I finished that, um, my girlfriend was like, hey, two of my friends are coming to Hudson to visit and their agent actually lives in Hudson and we're all getting dinner you should come. So it was the day that I finished, and I was like, nah, nah, you guys go ahead. Go without me. You have a girls' night out. Um, but then she made me come, and then I met uh, the agent who, uh, and then told her that I'd finished a novel, and she was like, well, send it to me. You know, if it's not for me, I'll send it to the right person. And like a month later, she she said she'd do it. Nice. And what's her name? Uh, Charlotte Sheedy. Okay. What what agency? Is she in business for herself? Is she have, does she work for- Yeah, she's, She's her own. Her own. Um, it, she doesn't do my kind of book normally. Which is crime fiction. Yeah, like a thriller sort of. Right. Um, she does like more nonfiction a lot and some 
she did some children's books and some young adult. She's um, but a lot of nonfiction. I'm looking at her books right here in her office. Eve Ensler's agent and um, Daniel Handler. Wow. Okay. So it's a good, yeah, you're in good hands. And so mm-hmm. she takes you on, it's like a seamless, like stroke of luck, but it also, you know, sometimes in life, uh, the timing is right and things emerge, you know, you've done the hard work of getting the book done and I don't know that that's sort of a magical story. I think there are probably, I, I would, I would surmise that about 65 to 70% of listeners are sort of loathing you right now. <laughs> I know that's why I said that's why I said it was the embarrassing thing. <laughs> but you know, but hey, for them, I can tell them that my, you know, they have no idea how. It, probably God was like he struggles too much with everything else. Yeah, let him everything have this. We'll start, let him, we'll you let know, him, yeah. the, the uncertainty, all that nausea. <laughs> he's been he's been through it. We'll we'll give him this one. Yeah. So okay. So you huh? get you get the agent. She takes you on after a month, and then did she have you do more revisions, or did she? take the manuscript straight out to publishers no she was it was pretty good from her end okay um so then she took it out and she started sending it to some and then you know we got um some rejections got like uh like eight rejections or something and then this story is actually kind of interesting too in terms of the like meant to be or whatever that kind of psychic i mean i'm not getting into all that you know, I'm not a super believer in all this stuff, but it it was kind of weird. Um, my girlfriend's parents live in Turkey half the year, and so we were visiting them in Turkey. And uh, she was her name's Rayhan, and she was reading um, a book, and it was uh, Jeanette Winterson's "Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal." Um, and I didn't recognize the little imprint on the spine, um, so I was like, "Who, who, what, who published that one?" You know, because I was thinking about that stuff at the time because she was sending it out to people. And she was like, Grove Atlantic published this. And I was like, oh, okay. And then like five hours later, the uh, call came in from Charlotte, the agent, saying that Grove Atlantic wanted to buy it. So that was kind of crazy, too. Wow. That's weird. Yeah, yeah like I have mixed feelings about uh, psychic uh, abilities. And, <laughs> you know, I do. I, you know, because I've, I've visited a psychic a couple of times in my life. And, like, she has known some stuff that, like, seemed like uncanny. And I did it on a lark. You know, I was young. I did it the day before I left for college, and then I did it uh, right before my book sold uh, years ago. And, and she predicted it. You know, so there's things that they get right. Really? Yeah. But just yesterday, yeah. just yesterday, I was talking to my wife, and um, our neighbors are trying to sell their place, and it, it had been on the market like for a long time, and it, like they just hadn't had the right bite or whatever, and so. I want to say like our my my like the it's, it's it's a married couple and the the female the woman like her mother or no no it's the male his mother is sort of like uh into the occult or not the occult but she's into psychic stuff you know and uh the spirit world or whatever and she was like well you know the reason you haven't sold this place is because you need to have it cleared and yeah. they were like, what? And she's like, yeah, you got to call this woman. She'll come in and she'll like clear it of all the negative energy and the negative spirits. And they, right. and they fucking did it. They were so desperate. They're like, they're like, okay, it's like, you know, it's 75 bucks or whatever. What do we got to lose? So they bring, yeah. they bring this woman into their empty apartment and she like goes through and like does whatever she does. And Burn some sage. within 24 hours, they got two offers, including one in all cash. No way. Yes. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm like, God, bring her over. I just want her to clear me. Forget my apartment. Yeah, yeah. really? Just clear yeah. me. I want yeah. offers. So, I mean, who, who fucking knows, man? There's more than <laughs> NCI. But that's, that's, that's pretty, right. That's pretty crazy. And 
you know, it sort of seems faded. There's a part of me that thinks, you know, do you, do you feel like, okay, this, this is obviously a sign. This is meant to be I'm on the right track, or do you put less, uh, do you put less stock in it? I think I kind of try to say that it is faded, you know, to myself. I'm like, it is faded, but I don't know if I'm talking about my deal, then maybe I say it's faded. But if I was talking about someone else's, then I'd be like, nah, it's a coincidence. Yeah. So, and Grove uh, preempted, like they they just took it. There was no other uh, publisher that came in fighting for it. It was just, you went straight to Grove. Um. Well, then there was some talk, but that all got kind of confusing. I, I, I don't know. Um. Yeah. Basically, yes. Okay. We just took their offer because um, Charlotte thought that it was, uh, you know, she thought it would be a good situation and being with the editor and stuff. Yeah. Well, it's about fit. You know, it's about the the right imprint, the right editor, knowing, having a publisher that knows how to roll out your particular book. I mean, did they have, you felt like that part of the process was um, what you expected or sometimes there's a schism. You know, I think a lot of us coming in, especially as debut authors, have this vision of publishing that is at odds with the reality of it, you know, because we might have some antiquated or romanticized version of it. But, um, like from your perspective in terms of just like the, the work that you did collaboratively and editorially, um, you know, getting the manuscript ready, like, was it everything you hoped for different? Yeah, they actually didn't do too much editing to it. So that was kind of easy. I kind of wanted even more editing sort of, but I mean, I love them, you know, I love Grove and stuff. It's great to be there. The editing was kind of, uh, it wasn't super heavy. They thought it was good to go. So, see all of your all of your uh, painstaking work and nausea paid off. Well, also I should also say, but this will, um, if there was thirty five percent that didn't hate me already, there's another. I've got another one where um, I've got a friend named. You probably know the guy actually, uh, Jordan Bass. You know him from McSweeney's. Mm, no, I was say his name again. He sort of broke Jordan up. Jordan Bass. No. Uh. Uh-uh. Uh, he edits McSweeney's um, the quarterly, but uh, he's a friend of mine from San Francisco, and I gave him the book to um, just to read and give me notes and stuff. And he had it for like eight months, and I was like, "Man, are you ever going to read the book?" And then finally, he uh, gave it back, and he had edited it pretty well. He did uh, a lot of edits to it. No, that that helps yeah. if you have a professional editor. Yeah. No, that was amazing. It was the nicest thing that anyone's ever done. And he, like, cut, you know, he cut a lot. He cut, like, 20% of it. Um, So that was awesome. Did you take most of his notes? I took almost every single one, really. I agreed with He's an amazing editor, and I really agreed with everything that he suggested. Wow. Except for, like, one, just one word choice or something. One word. I was like, no, you know, that word actually, I think, works. Yeah, I find that, like, I mean, it, I, there's obviously cases where writers will dig in and fight for their pages or have, like, a strong disagreement with an editor. But most writers I know, most of the time, if somebody gives them, like, thoughtful editorial feedback, they tend to take it. I, I tend to take almost every piece of yeah. like editorial criticism. I'll be like, yes, you're right. Like, and, 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 yeah, like, totally. Even when it comes to this show, people will say something positive, and I'll be like, yeah, maybe. Yeah. And if somebody says <laughs> something negative, I'm like, you're exactly right. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's cool. Yeah. Wow. That, so that's helpful. And that explains why there was not as much of an edit on the part of your uh, agent and your publisher. Yeah, I think so. So, okay. So you get through that. Um, the books, you know, and, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is the title. Uh, just like, you know, as a, from the perspective of symbology, 
we think of crime, you know, we think of um, our childhoods. Like there is a, a real like significance to this image of the white van like if you yeah i'm imagining you've thought a lot about what you know why the why i mean obviously it's a van often windowless but like why white yeah you know like it's like a very yeah yeah it's a very particular vehicle that tends to have like a you know a, a crime um connotation yeah definitely i mean i don't know i don't know why they're white but yeah probably just they have more white ones than they do other colors. They're cheaper. They're cheaper. One yeah. thing. Yeah, that's a good point. It's cheaper like, and safer. And if it's just like a utility thing, you know, if they're just working, it's just like they'll make it white. Right. Um, but yeah, it's crazy how much of a symbol it is for some people. And like my dad, when I told my dad uh, the title, or he read the book and he was into it, but he was like, the title just, I don't get the title. He just didn't understand it at all. So most people get it, but for some people, some people don't get it at all. And it doesn't mean anything. He was like, it's the same, same as if he named it like the gray sofa or something, <laughs> you know? But for me, I'm like, no way. It's totally like, it's the symbol of evil sort of. Yeah. Yeah. The kidnapper van. Um, yeah. Okay. So, and then this is a crime thriller. Is that how you would categorize? Yeah. And is this the kind of book, like when you looked forward, are you thinking to yourself, like, I'm going to write crime thrillers or do you find you you think you're going to be working in like across genres or? I think thrillers in general, and maybe not so much crime later, but just I think it would always be sort of thrillers, you know. And is that what you read mostly? No, I read a I read everything. Like, um, give me some examples. I mean, you know, like, are you reading lots of like? Do you read crime nonfiction? Do you read? Um. Yeah. I mean, I love true crime stuff, um, but I, you know, I'll read. I, I read. Uh, um, literary books, you know, literary fiction, and I kind of mix between literary fiction and, and crime fiction, and then throw in a nonfiction here and there. Okay, and so why thrillers? Like, why do you feel like you gravitate towards that? I think one thing is um, that I just love thrillers. You know, I love reading them, so I was drawn in that way. But also, there was an element to it that was uh, that it seemed. Um, more doable sort of to me that it was more forgiving sort of the technical issues what do you, not, not what do you, being a great writer or something what do you mean more forgiving i felt like i felt like it was the equivalent of making a uh punk rock album instead of a uh, uh chamber music or jazz or something where you didn't have to be as technically skillful you know where they not judge so much on the style or whatever Right. Um, you know what I mean? Does that make sense at all? It, it does. Yeah. I mean, are you really good at plot? Like, do you, did you, I mean, or I guess you had to get good at it to, to the degree that you got yourself published and you're well reviewed now and everything. But, um, like what, what about that part of it? Is that something that comes naturally to you? Did you do outlining or were you just working intuitively figuring it out page by I page? Just, I just work straight through it, not outlining it and just kind of start and then continue on, you know, that style. But, uh, yeah, I think I'm more sort of drawn to plot and story kind of straight up as it is than to um, sentences or something or words. You know, I can't, like, I don't really know grammar that well or, you know, I know it well, but it's not like I, I, I'm i not, like, I don't know. I just feel sometimes without having gone to graduate school or something that I don't know, like I wouldn't know how to chart out a sentence or something, that kind of thing, or... And also just like word choice isn't, doesn't really totally, it's not my 
super my thing where I'm really into that stuff, you know, the way that some people are, some writers are are really into that. But I would be, I mean, I'm more into, I like, uh, if anything on that side, I kind of get into more just the rhythm of the sentences. Well, and clarity, clarity too. I mean, I think like there's, there's a place in the world for like language choice that maybe is more difficult or requires more of the reader, but from like a, I mean, I, I kind of like a clear style, like a more simple, you know, yeah. simple sentence structure. I mean, you know, it, it depends on how it's done, but I get it what you're saying. And yeah. When that it, was my, uh, sorry, I was going to say that was my, I was working on the rules. There's like a few people that say like Elmer Leonard and uh, George Simonon both, you know, say that talk about, any kind of stylistic they try to get rid of just any kind of writerly thing or stylistic writer writerly kind of sentences they try to get rid of that that's kind of the rule that i was operating under where i was just trying not to have uh pretty sentences at all yeah like just not get in the reader's way like let them like immerse themselves in the action yeah yeah or do you not agree no, no, I said yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. Okay. No, all right. So, and then <laughs> it, it strikes me too. It strikes me too that, like, you know, when it comes to plot and the fact that you know the fact that you're writing thrillers and not doing any kind of like preconception or outline is interesting to me because in a book that is more plot heavy, um, you know, you would think that there would be more of a need for that. But when I think about the work that you did uh, specifically as a private investigator. You know, for for a decade, you're swimming essentially in crime narratives, and you know you have uh, all of that source material, you know, basically uh, working for you at the subconscious level, I would imagine, and so that probably gives you uh, a unique ability uh, to piece something together with intuition. Like it, it would seem, seem make, like that would make it easier. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's from the work that made it that way, or it's just the way that my brain works. But I can't. Like, I would love to be able to try to plot it out um, ahead of time or something. That sounds like that would be a great way to do it, and I would be very happy to do it that way. But I really, if I try to think of it that way, I can't. I can't think of it when I try to plot it out. The brain just like won't go there. But if I'm when I'm writing it, if I'm inside of it writing it, then those ideas come, you know, as I'm doing it. Yeah. Um, but it just won't come if I'm not actually working on it. Did you find yourself drawing though from the work that you did in some kind of way, like piecing like pieces here? And oh there? yeah. Yeah. Definitely all over. I mean, not specifically. Well, a little bit even specifically. Yeah, for sure though. Everything. Yeah. I mean. Just from the, I mean, I took a lot of details, you know, or like streets or whatever. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of specific stuff, but the case, the story that it's about isn't like really a specific story. But uh, even the themes, like I didn't set out to have any themes in it. Um, you know, I just wanted to write a thriller, but then when it's done, then you kind of can see some things. And I think well, one of the biggest ones is just a sort of public defender one where it's, uh, kind of, you know, that everyone, no one's really guilty for what they do. Everyone's got a reason for the bad acts that they do. Yeah. Well, that, that's actually, it's actually an interesting, we could, we, this is like towards the end of the hour and not you, if we start, we start on trying to unwind this ball of thread, we're going to be here for another three hours. But, um, <laughs> like, I don't know if you've ever thought about free will. Like I'm still trying to figure out if I believe in free will. I've been, I've read some pretty compelling arguments against, and it starts to, you know, it starts to make people's, and then I, and then I start to think about like the, um, 
the illusion of self. I mean, this is where it starts it, to get a little yeah. ridiculous, but you start to realize like <laughs> there is no, there, there is no actor. There's only action. And like how much uh, of people's behavior is, uh, the, you know, free will or how much of it is just like kind of inevitable and caused by like a, an amalgam of circumstances, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It's pretty deep, but uh, were you thinking along those yeah. lines? Were you thinking along those lines when you're thinking about crime? Or is that like a... You know, on the first one, not so much on those lines, but actually on the one I'm working on now, sort of, I have been thinking about that more on this one I'm working on. Okay, yeah. So I was going to say, are you working on another um, one? Yeah, but the first one I was just, I wasn't really thinking about um, those kind of bigger issues as I was working on it. You're that just, much you're just like i'm just but, trying, uh, i'm just trying to get this fucking thing done <laughs> i was yeah i was just like i just want a thriller i just want action to happen you know just bad things to happen to people and people to get scared and stuff yeah well that's cool <laughs> and then uh and the thing too about theme like i was gonna say you know like i think th you, you said that you weren't trying like at the beginning of the thing to you know to go into it with theme on the brain and i, I think that's kind of natural i feel like theme often emerges when the thing is either done or close to done you start to realize what it's about you know with the benefit of hindsight and you know i think that's normal because i feel like if you start with theme that can sometimes be paralyzing because it, it's it can seem to it can be too grandiose you're like i'm going to try to say something and make yeah. some sort of statement about x or y and right you know there's enough like you said there's enough nausea to begin with you don't need to add yeah. like, all this ex yeah. all this pressure to like you know make some sort of although yeah although that adds to the nausea too if you know if you don't know what it is then you start wondering why you're doing it or right. whatever <laughs> right. there's basically no escape uh yeah, what is this for why am i working on this thing every day <laughs> there's no meaning to this uh, so are you um like are you all in now like are you able are you making a living with your fiction or are you you know is your uh girlfriend you know, going to pull the, the weight while you finish the second book? Like, what what's your approach now? Um, no, I mean, originally when we were up in Hudson, I thought that maybe I could make it work just on the fiction. Um, so I was living like super, you know, with a tight belt up there. Um, but it ended up, I, it wasn't, it's not quite enough to do it, do it you know. So now um, coming back down to the city, I'm going to try to be uh, doing some investigation on the side, do some private investigation on the side. Yeah. And uh, so just mix the two. And I think that's good, actually, for me to be, like, I had a year and a half of not um, working a job and not interacting with people. And I think it started, I think it would be better for me to be out mixing it up with um, real people. Yeah. No, that seems like, you know, if you can make it work, that sounds like a good plan. And it'd probably be good for your, if you're writing crime thrillers, I mean, or thrillers of any kind, it probably wouldn't hurt to be doing that kind of work, you know? and Yeah, I think so. If I can just stay disciplined enough to keep doing the writing in the, in the mornings, yeah. days or something at some point, but it gets hard if you have to do the work too, you know, do the outside job. But Right. Uh, yeah, but that time, uh, that, um, that time pressure yeah. can be good. The time pressure can be good. It's like, you know, I don't I know. I think so, actually. Yeah, it's like, it's almost I bad. I totally think that it was hard. This year and a half was hard to be doing just the writing. Yeah. Well, and then what about uh, movies? You know? What about, well, first of all, did you get a two-book deal, or is this second book spec and you're going to go back out with it? I got a two-book deal. Oh, you did? Okay. And then what about yeah. what about movie stuff? Because thrillers um, yeah. obviously translate better. Like, Are you like, hopeful that you're going to get an adaptation made? Is that part of your grand plan? Yeah, I mean, I really do hope that that happens, and I think that it would 
make a great movie, you know, it would be a very easy translation. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of, obviously a lot of great projects that would make great movies don't get made. Yeah. Um, but so I think, it, you know, it hasn't been optioned yet, but it's just coming out right now. I got some Hollywood agents that are working on that end. And I think that they, they um, I'm pretty confident it'll get optioned, but then once it's optioned, then, then I, I'm not, you know, from there, I don't know what would happen. Yeah. Well, I wish you luck on it and I congratulate you on the success. It's fun to talk to you after all these years. And, I know really, man. Yeah. So if, uh, you know, hopefully if, if I'm out East or you're out West, we can get a, get a drink or something and catch up in, in even greater detail. But, uh, once again, thanks for talking and, uh, congratulations. Sounds good. Thank you so much. And I really love your show. I love listening to it and listening to the other writers talk. It just, when I was living that year up in Hudson, it was giving me refuge walking around in the empty streets listening to that. Just, yeah, it's just some voices in your head. <laughs> some more voices. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Patrick. Right on, man. Take, Take care. care. Okay, there you go. That's Patrick Hoffman. His novel is called The White Van. It's his debut. Go get it. Support an author. Uh, the book is available from Grove Atlantic. Did I say that? You can find Patrick on the Twitter. His handle there is at PDC Hoffman. Uh, thank you to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. Uh, this program, this podcast, has its own official app, the Other People app. The app is available uh, wherever you can find apps. The App Store, uh, the Amazon Marketplace, what have you. So here, here's the thing. The app is free. You go get, you know, you go get it. You upload it to your uh, device or you download it to your device or whatever the verb is. And then uh, once you do that, you get the most recent 50 episodes of this podcast for free. They'll be there waiting for you. You can uh, listen to them uh, with a Wi-Fi signal. If you're, if you're going to be somewhere without Internet, you can download episodes to listen to offline. And then best of all, if you want to stream the full archives, you can sign up for premium right there within the app. And it's a, it's a pittance. It's very cheap. So go get the app. The app is free. And, uh, you know, demonstrations of outrage. Apple products. I think, you know, I think I should amend or at least uh, append what I was saying about uh, the whole NFL Ray Rice thing. That whole outrage. I think a lot of the outrage is at the NFL for failing to like, uh, you know, properly punish. I mean, suspending a guy for smoking weed. I've always said this professional athletes should never be suspended for smoking weed ever. It's not a performance enhancer. It's a performance detractor. If you can smoke weed and then go play professional football at a high level, you should get extra money. <laughs> you should be awarded, not penalized. That's even more impressive to me. But, I mean, you know, if you need any example of, of an organization that's backwards in its thinking, look right there. Some guy knocks his wife out and he gets two games. And they probably knew about it and just ignored it or whatever. And then some guy smokes a joint and gets suspended for a whole season. Loses his livelihood. It's fucked up. And, you know, yeah, Ray Rice deserves, uh, you know, he deserves to feel like shit for what he did. And I think he does. I just, you know, his wife and him, they're still together. She released a statement today saying, like, you destroyed my family. It's kind of sad, you know? I just feel for him in a way. I feel for her. Maybe And maybe she's got Stockholm Syndrome. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. 
What's the proper way to respond? What would Jesus do is what I'm saying. Would he publicly hate on Twitter or would he have compassion? <laughs> I want to be Christ-like in my uh, approach to this and in my approach to all things. Let's just uh, let's all just be a little bit more like like hippie Jesus. So thanks to Patrick Hoffman. Uh, that was great talking to him. I appreciate it. Uh, and it was great to, uh, reconnect with somebody from my past like that. I like when that happens. Please remember that, uh, what should I say? Plotinus did not begin to write until he was 50 and Goethe was 78 before he started part two of Faust. That's all for now. Thanks you guys for listening. I appreciate it. And uh, I will be back again soon. Uh, and I hope that I will not be uh, outraged. I'm not really outraged. I'm just bitching. I have to say something. You know, you guys expect me to say something. So I'm trying to come up with material. (laughs) 